Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Jason, singers, musicians. Beautiful singing this morning. Thank you, sign team. That was beautiful. And uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're still in that series on great passages of the Bible. And uh, those passages that you and I have heard all of our life, maybe we heard it in Sunday school, maybe we heard it in VBS, and uh, those great passages. And we come to one today, which is truly great. It's the story of Lazarus and uh, Jesus raising him from the dead. And it truly is a tremendous chapter. We're going to take only one verse to start with. Keep your Bibles open and we'll look at other Uh, at really the whole chapter, except maybe close to the end there. So keep your Bibles open. Look at the one verse in verse 25, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in our English New Testament. The actual in the Greek New Testament, the shortest verse is in uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice Evermore. But uh, for our English Translation, this is the shortest verse in the Bible. That's the reason children love it so much. They can, you know, if you say, can you say a Bible verse? Jesus wept. And uh, it's easy to remember. And, uh, but it, it says a tremendous amount. It speaks of his love and compassion for us. It speaks of his humanity. This great book of John, we have seven miracles The Bible records 35 miracles of Christ. Now, in no way does it indicate there were only 35 miracles because in many places it says he performed many miracles and healed many people. And so we don't know. I mean, that and that takes place on many occasions in the Bible. But of the of the miracles that uh, where he gives us details about the miracles, there's 35 of them. And this miracle of the raising of Lazarus is number 30 in the line of those 35 miracles. And it is close now. We, in this, in this uh, chronological order, we are close now to the Passion Week and the cross. Uh, John only records seven miracles. You know, he's got seven I.M.s and seven miracles. The word miracle in the book of John is a little different than the word miracle in the other places in the New Testament. Uh, it can be, and sometimes it's translated a sign. And uh, so his, his miracles, though they were authentic uh, uh, miracles, John put them into his writing as a as a sign of who Jesus was, proving who he was and who he claimed to be. And so with that said, it has been said many times about this chapter, chapter 11, that it's one of the greatest displays and illustrations of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ at the same time. We have Jesus who can raise the dead as God, and yet we have him traveling by foot from one location to another and weeping with a family that's hurting. So it's a tremendous chapter. Pray with me. Father, thank you for our time together. Make it profitable, I pray. Teach us and remind us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Charles Hatton Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of England, in one of his books to his students, which were people training for ministry, one of his chapters was dedicated to people who were going through a, a time of being down, discouraged, despondent, depressed, and so forth. And uh, he writes in that book, and I quote now, The strong are not always vigorous. The wise are not always ready. The brave are not always contagious, or courageous, excuse me. And the joyous are not always happy. <laughs> what he meant by that was, as he went on to explain it, is that when, though you may be characterized by joy yourself, you may be a joyous person. There are times even a joyous person does not have joy, or they do not, they are not happy. Times and pressures of life come, and we respond maybe in the wrong way, and, and uh, those times come. So even the joyous are not always happy. <laughs> the strong are not always strong. Frank Graff was a Methodist pastor in the 1800s. He was such a, a joyous countenance and character that he got the nickname the Sunshine Pastor. <laughs> And uh, because he was always smiling, kids loved him, everybody loved him, and uh, he was, seemed always to be joyous. But there was a time in his life when it seems like everything came crashing down. One, one historian says it like this. Uh, it was a time of of a series of heartbreaks that shattered his spirit. And he went into an unfamiliar valley of deep despondency. Another historian writes about him like this during this period of his life. He had great physical agony. Sometimes those times come even to someone who is Normally joyful. It was during that period of time that he, he found great comfort in, uh, in 1 Peter 5, 7. That says that we are to cast all of our care upon the Lord for he cares for us. He loves us. He cares about what's happening to us, what's touching us, what makes us cry, what hurts us. He cares about those things. He cares about you and about me. And he found great comfort in that verse. And it was, it was during this time in his life when he wrote the hymn that you and I have sang many times, Does Jesus Care? You know, the song asks the question, does Jesus care when we're going through this or this or this? And then the chorus comes back and answers the question, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. He's touched with, the, uh, with our grief. In this great chapter, God is telling us, Jesus cares. He is touched by our grief, by our pain, 
and by our sorrow. That's the reason he wept. Now, with that said, let's come back to verse 1 and pick up the story in verse 1. Even before verse 1, we know that in verse chapter 10 that uh, they were going to stone Jesus to death. Remember, we're close now to the week, the Passion Week. And uh, the Jews were going to took up stones to stone him, but Jesus passed through their midst. Probably in a supernatural way, God restrained the throwing of those stones. And he went to a place where John had baptized Bethsaida, which was about 20 miles from Jerusalem. And he was there when chapter 11, verse 1 begins. So look at that, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. And uh, it was the town of Mary and her sister, Martha. So the three of them lived together, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They lived together. They were friends of Jesus. Jesus apparently had kind of a home away from home and lived with them some, stayed with them some, and were, uh, were close friends. Verse 2 says, It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So now he's identifying this family a little bit and says, This is the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped it with her hair. We saw that, by the way, acted out last night in the play uh, that uh, the seniors went to, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful moment of worship. It was beautifully acted out. It's interesting here, though, that uh, in John's writing, and no one, no, none of the other uh, gospel writers uh, mentioned this particular anointing, and... Uh, and John hadn't mentioned it yet. John's going to tell about it in chapter 12. But he kind of assumes the people of that day would have known about it. So this must have been a pretty well-known uh, oral telling of this woman who anointed Jesus' feet, whose name was Mary, whose sister was Martha, and brother was Lazarus. This is the family. He's identifying them. Therefore his sisters, verse 3, sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. You know, you've heard it said many times that there are two Greek words that's translated love for us in our English Bibles. And uh, one is phileo, one is agape. Agape is the stronger of the two. Agape is only used of God and God's people. And, uh, and when it's used of God's people, it is the idea that God himself is loving through us or enabling us to love others with his love. That's agape love. But phileo love is a tremendous love too. Phileo love means, uh, and even people who aren't saved can love with phileo love. Husband can love a wife. Children can love their parents. Parents can love their children. Brothers can love sisters. You know how that is. And so people can love, and it's a wonderful love, but it has more the idea of affection and emotion, a fondness of, where the other has more the idea of a choice. You're choosing to do what's loving towards a person whom you love. This particular word here is the word phileo. It's the weaker of the two words. But here it, it, 
it paints a beautiful picture. Not only did Jesus love Lazarus with a agape love, a love that would always do what's best for him, but he also loved him with a friendship love of, of affection, a fondness. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to think that not only does Jesus love you with an everlasting, unchanging love, but he loves you with a fondness. He likes to be around you. He likes to spend time with you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That's the kind of love and friendship Lazarus had with Jesus, and really the sisters as well. And so the messenger says, he whom thou lovest is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified therein. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now that word love is the agape love. He loved them also with a love that always does what's best. And he loves us with that kind of love. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. So he's one, he's one day's journey away, 20 miles away. In Bible days, that was a day's journey. I hate to think I had to walk 20 miles in one day, wouldn't you? Uh, but that was a day's journey. And... Uh, and so they come and, and tell him, and he stays two more days there in that place. Now we find out later that when he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. Now if you do the math, he stays two days, and then he goes to Bethany, that's three days. But the messenger who brought the message, he had to travel a day. That's four days. So Lazarus died not long after the messenger left the house. By the time he told Jesus that Lazarus was sick, Lazarus was already dead. And, of course, Jesus knew that, as we'll see in a moment. Again, we see, we see such beautiful blending of his humanity and his deity. Uh, it's just impossible to point out all of those places uh, in this passage. But Jesus waited. Now think about the, back at the Bethany when the ladies, when that messenger got back a day later, he told the ladies, Jesus said, this is... This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. Well, how do you think the sisters felt about that? I mean, Lazarus has already been dead two days at that point in time. Jesus said, this is, this is not unto death. They might have thought, for the first time ever, Jesus is wrong. Or maybe they thought Jesus didn't understand the messenger right, or the messenger didn't give the right message, or something also, we know that when they see Jesus, they both mention, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. They were hoping he would come, of course, and, and heal their brother. Or maybe that he would just, as he had done on times past, he would just speak the word from 20 miles away and tell the messenger, go on back, Lazarus will be fine when you get there. He could have healed him from a distance. 
But he didn't. The sisters must have felt a little let down. I think we see that in their words a little later on. Jesus didn't come through like they wanted him to. God's people feel that way sometimes. We don't like to admit it. We probably wouldn't say it publicly, but we feel that way sometimes. Like, why did the Lord let this happen? Why didn't the Lord, I know God could have changed this, but why didn't he change this? Isaiah shares with us a beautiful truth. Look back at your screen for a moment. And for time's sake, we'll look at this on the screen. In these first 32 verses, we see the timing of Christ. And Isaiah says, Isaiah says, and therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. His weight is always a weight of love. He loved this family. We may not understand it down here, but he waits that he might be gracious unto us. Therefore, blessed are all they that wait on him. Wait on him. He will come through. His timing will not necessarily be like yours or what you wanted or what you desired. It certainly wasn't for Martha and Mary. They desired Jesus to come and hurry, hurry down and heal our brother or heal him from where you are. But that didn't happen. He died. So you can see the disappointment they would have felt. Well, notice now in the next verse, verse 7, it says... Then after that said he unto his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone you. And goeth thou thither again? And uh, they said, It's dangerous. It's, it's foolish to go there. The, the Jewish leaders are so stirred up, they want to kill you. And uh, Jesus said, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he, needeth, uh, he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. He gives a little short parable and says, If a man's walking in the light. Now think about it in the physical realm first. If you're going on a journey and you're and you're uh, walking during the day, you can see, you know, there's a ditch right over here, and there's a snake over here. When I think about the walking in the dark, I think about snakes. And so anyway, but in the day, you could see there's a ditch, there's a snake, here's some other something in the way you're going to trip over, a limb across the road. But if you are walking at night, you might fall into that ditch or trip over that limb, or you might <laughs> get bitten by that snake. And so in the physical realm, and of course they didn't have flashlights and, and big old lights on the front of their cars. If, uh, so uh, if you were going to travel, at, travel, you wanted to travel during the day when you could see. Now Jesus likens that to the will of God. When you're walking in the will of God, you're, you, can, you can see your path better and God is leading you and guiding you. And when you're out of the will of God, it's like you're in the dark and you can stumble and fall. 
And so he uses this little parable to say it, it may seem dangerous to you, but we've got to do what is the will of God. And this is the will of God, the will of the Father. Jesus always did the will of the Father. And so he gives them a little parable. And then he tells them in verse 11, These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of the sleep. Now, Jesus uses the word sleep as a euphemism for death. It's used several times that way in the Scripture. There is never any hint of soul death, as the term is used sometimes in the Bible. Never. Uh, the euphemism for sleep is that when a person is dead, their body is asleep waiting the resurrection. They themselves are somewhere in eternity, heaven or hell or somewhere in eternity. And, uh, uh, but the body is, and it looks like it's asleep, you know, and awaits the day of the resurrection. So Jesus uses this indicating that Lazarus had died, and as, the, you know, as it often was, his disciples didn't understand his figures of speech all the time. They didn't hear either. But I want you to catch one, before we leave this verse, one more phrase. He says, our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Our friend. This, I find this greatly comforting. Maybe you will too. Jesus knew Lazarus had been dead three days at this point. And he didn't say he, he was our friend or he used to be our friend. He said, our friend is sleeping. He didn't cease to be. He didn't cease to be a friend. He was just in a better place, a different place. He was still his friend. Does that bring you any comfort? Your mama is still your mama. Your dad's still your dad. Your brother's still your brother. Your family that passed on, they're still your family. They're just in a different, better place. He said, our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Well, Verse 12 says, And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. I mean, he'll recover if he's resting well. You know, sleep's good for you when you're sick. And uh, then uh, he'll recover. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, and they, his disciples, thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, you couldn't misunderstand that, could you? Lazarus is dead. That's what's going on. And so then the disciples probably were shocked by that statement. Last thing they heard, he was just seriously ill. And then Jesus says something that if it was, if all of it wasn't there, would have been pretty startling as well. Look at it in verse 15. And I am glad. He, would, he was glad that Lazarus was dead. But he goes on to say, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. So he said, I'm glad I was not there because Jesus has a plan in all of this. Um, you know, Friday night, again, Kathleen had her worship and it was, it was quite beautiful and one of the things that, that uh, she sang was a song that, uh, or the group sang, was a song that she had written, Pursued. Uh, 
And she said something before the song, a little testimony that sometimes we as God's people don't feel worthy to be pursued. And sometimes people who maybe should have pursued us do not pursue us. But that the Lord never gives up on us. And there's something wonderfully true in that he pursues us as the shepherd goes after the one and leaves the 99. Or as Jesus said himself, I come to seek that which is lost. And some of the words of that song that she wrote says, uh, I'm prone to one wander, yet he pursues me. Prone to turn and walk away, a broken vessel with broken pieces, but he loves me anyway. Yet he loves me anyway. Jesus was, in this whole chapter again, there's so much in this chapter, but in this whole chapter again, he is, he is pursuing two different groups of people. He's pursuing his own followers that their faith might be strengthened, that they might grow in their understanding of him and trusting him. He's also pursuing the lost, that they might come to him and find forgiveness. We see that close to the end of, of the story. And so he says, I'm glad it was a good thing that I wasn't there, even though everybody thought I should have rushed, you know. Everybody thought I was behind and maybe didn't care or, or uh, so forth. Uh, notice the last part, verse 15. I am glad for your sakes I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Now, they already believed on him, but that their faith may be strengthened, that they may believe more. They may come to trust him more in who he is and what he can do in their lives. Nevertheless, let us go. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, Thomas Didymus, same name, Thomas in the Aramaic, and Didymus is the Greek translation of the same name. It means twin. We assume that Thomas had a twin. Or maybe <laughs> he's all of us, he's our twin because we all act a little bit like Thomas sometimes. At any rate, he says unto his fellow disciples, disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, at first reading, this may be quite noble. Let us go that we might die with him. But in actuality, if you think about it, it's rather pessimistic. I mean, Jesus is the God of glory, the creator of the universe. He's not going to die until the time comes. And he could hold off the crowd when they wanted to stone him before. He could do it again and so forth. But Thomas is sure that if they go, they're going to die. And let's die with him. You know, Thomas is sometimes called Doubting Thomas. And that comes from chapter 20 when Jesus said you know, stop your unbelief and start believing. There's three times, there's three, his name's mentioned many times in, you know, the list of the disciples, but there's only three times we have any kind of response from Thomas where we're given any insight where he's actually saying something. And all three times he is consistent. He's consistently pessimistic. He's consistently morbid. Here he says, you know, I, I picture him saying it like this. Oh, he, his mind's made up. Let's go too. We're all going to die. 
Let's just go. We're all going to die. It's settled. That's the idea. When he gets over to chapter 14 of John, Jesus said, uh, I'm going to a great place, and you know the way. Thomas said, we don't know the way. He's all upset. We don't know the way. Jesus just said, you know the way. He said, we don't know the way. Jesus said, I am the way. He really knew the way. He just didn't know he knew the way. <laughs> and then in chapter 20, we find him after the resurrection. The other disciples had all seen Jesus. I mean, they've, they've known him for three years. They saw him. He talked with them, ate with them and everything. When they tell Thomas, he said, I'm not going to believe that. No. I will not believe that until I touch the... Scars in his hands and touch the piercing in his side. And Jesus appeared to him, to the disciples. Then a week later when all of them were together and Thomas was there, Jesus said, here, come touch my hands. And he fell down on his face and cried out, my Lord and my God. And that's when Jesus said, be not faithless, but believe. So Thomas was consistent. He was consistently pessimistic. You know, a lot of people are that way. It's the person who says, you know, it might can be done, but it can't be done here. Or the person who says, uh, no, we can't do that. Why? Well, we've never done it that way before. And, you know, it's always, he's always afraid something's going to happen wrong and so forth. And Thomas was that way. But we have to admire something about Thomas. He was willing to die for Christ. Let's go that we might die with him. We cannot, we cannot question his devotion to Christ whatsoever. And so they go. A little insight into Thomas. Wow, I'm a long ways from finishing here. But we're going to feed you lunch, so it's fine. Uh, let me move quickly. 17, and when Jesus came, he found that he had laid in the grave four days already. So four days. The reason that they buried him so quickly is because in, in that day, among the Jewish people, they didn't embalm or anything like that, and it was hot and humid. They had to, they had to bury the same day someone died. And so they would wrap the, you know, wrap the body in, in linen and put some spices on it and, and put the body into the grave. And so... He had been in the grave four days already. Now, Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem or near about 15 furlongs. A furlong is 600 feet, uh, or about 600 feet. 600 feet is two football fields. So if you took a distance of two football fields and you had 15 of them, that'd be about two miles. So they're about two miles from Jerusalem. And, uh, and verse 19, And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out and met him. And, but Mary stayed still, or sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatever you will ask of God, God will give it to thee. Now, I don't think she had in mind a resurrection here because from the rest of the context, we can tell. But she knew that if he asked, maybe 
whatever he asked, God would grant, and maybe he would ask for some comfort for them or to ease their pain of sorrow and so forth. He was there now, and they felt better about everything because even though their brother was dead, Jesus was on the scene, and that would be helpful. And uh, uh, verse 23, Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She was theologically correct. He would rise again in the last day. And, uh, but she did not think he would rise that day. Now, when, when Lazarus rose from the dead, I'll get ahead of myself because I may not have time to tell this, but uh, he, he was not in a glorified body. He was in a human body that would still get old and sick again. He'd have to die again one day. Uh, but then he would be resurrected in the last day. So she says, I believe he'll be resurrected in the last day. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection. Not only is there a future resurrection, but the one who's going to cause it, the one who is the resurrection, standing right in front of you. Wow, what a statement. You know, there's, there's seven I am's. This is the fifth in line of the seven I am's. I am the resurrection, and the life, or life. I'm the giver of life. I'm the source of life. I am the resurrection. I'm right here with you. Uh, he, that, he said, he that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. People die physically, but the, even their physical bodies will live again. Because Jesus is the resurrection. Now notice in the next verse he says, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And so this time he's talking about the real person. The real person will never die. If you've believed on Christ, you will never, never die. Now somewhere along the line your body will die, but you won't die. You're not your body. You're the person, the being living inside of that body. And that person will never die. What beautiful passage, and I'm skimming quickly here. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Wow, she believed. She believed not only he was the Messiah, the Christ, but he was the Son of God himself. And, um, and when she had so said... She went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly or privately, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. So soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town. So he was still in the outskirts of Bethany, but was in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and uh, comforted her when they saw Mary that she arose up hastily and went out followed her saying she goeth unto the grave to weep there so they wanted to go and continue to comfort her but she was actually going to see Jesus then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him she fell down at his feet again there's three times 
in the Scripture where Mary is described beyond just mentioning her name. And all three times she's at the feet of Jesus. One time she's at the feet of Jesus learning. Here she's at the feet of Jesus surrendering. And in chapter 12, she's at the feet of Jesus worshiping. (laughs) But all three times, she falls at his feet. That's a wonderful place for God's people to be, isn't it? The feet of Jesus. So at any rate, she now falls down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It's the exact same wording that Martha said. They must have said it to themselves many times. It was on their mind, you know. They, while their brother was sick and dying and Jesus wasn't there, they kept saying, if Jesus was here, our brother wouldn't die. So she says the same thing again. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. He was, that word groan there means deeply moved. Greatly moved. Uh, the word troubled comes from a, uh, a um, root word that means to stir up water. Uh, uh, to stir something up. He is stirred up on the inside in his heart and, and soul. And uh, sometimes it's translated to become angry. Not always, but sometimes it can, and it can be translated that way. So what was Jesus so greatly moved, deeply moved about and, and stirred about? Well, I think the most obvious answer is that when he saw the pain of the people he loved, he was moved with compassion, deeply moved and stirred to help them and to meet their needs and comfort them and so forth. Maybe beyond that, though, he, he was stirred by what sin had done to the perfect creation that he and the Father had created. And sin had come, and now death was everywhere, and people's hearts were breaking. Remember, Jesus came from a place where there were no tears and sorrow and no crying. Now he's in a world full of tears and weeping and loss and hurt and pain. And he was moved because of their hurt and sorrow and because of what sin had produced. And verse 34, and said, where have you laid him? They say unto him, Lord, come and see. And then it brings us to our text, Jesus wept. Now that word weep is a different word for the word that was used earlier of the other people weeping. The word that was used for the other people weeping indicated a wailing, a sobbing, a crying out loud where people can hear you uh, weeping. This word is completely a completely different word. It means to cry strongly but silently. Dr. Kenneth Weiss, that great uh, Greek scholar, translates it like this. He burst out crying. Silently. (laughs) He burst. So it wasn't just a tear or two. He burst out crying, but he did it silently without the wailing. Jesus was deeply moved. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. 
They saw that as a token of his love, and it was. What they didn't realize was he loved them as much as he loved Lazarus. And he loved the ones who would nail him to the cross and the ones that would spit in his face and the ones that would cry out, Crucify him! He loved them just as much. And he loved those standing there watching. And by the way, he was seeking them. He was pursuing them, those people who are going to see this. And, uh, and then some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even... Uh, this man should not have died. So they criticized him as well. <clears throat> if, he had, uh, if, his, if he had planned his schedule a little better, he could have been here and kept this from happening. And, and he's four days late now. Uh, and so they criticize him for not meeting the need in the timetable that was expected or desired. Jesus therefore again groaned in himself. That is, he was deeply moved. Coming to the grave, it was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take you away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto, the, unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. So she didn't expect a resurrection. But it wasn't uncommon for family members and close friends to want to view the body. You know, we still do that today. We have a, a viewing of the body. But someone is embalmed, so there's no uh, uh, decaying of the body. But by this time, Lazarus would have been decaying. Four days. Hot and humid place. So she said, by now there there's would be a terrible odor coming from this decaying body. And it, if you think about it, how a horrible thought is. If Jesus and the family went in to view the body and, and there was a terrible stench from the decay, I mean, that would be a horrifying thing to this family. So she said... Uh, no, uh, we, can't, we can't roll away the stone. So she wasn't expecting to see a resurrection. Jesus saith unto her, verse 40, Say I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Now, Martha said, we can't move the stone. Mary didn't say anything. Mary was a little more insightful. I just wonder, now this is speculation. I just wonder if maybe by now she'd begin to have a little bit of a inclination at what might be going on. I don't know. And so, Jesus said, or verse 41, and then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee, for thou hast heard me, and I know that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So he says this prayer, short prayer, and when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. What a moment. The greatest of the miracles of Christ, and he says the words, the same voice that, that said, let there be light, and there was light. 
Now he says, Lazarus, come forth. Been said many times, of course, that if he hadn't specified Lazarus, Lazarus, all of the graves would have emptied. In John chapter 5, Jesus said that one day he's going to speak and all the graves are going to be emptied, some to the resurrection of the damned and some to the resurrection of life eternal. And Jesus is going to call everyone, everyone from the graves one day. This is a preview. So he had to specify <laughs> Lazarus, least others are all come forth. So he specifies, Lazarus with a loud voice. Did Lazarus need a loud voice? No. But there was a big crowd gathered, and those in the back, they needed to hear. So Jesus said it with a loud voice so everyone around could see and know what was going on. Now think with me for a moment. They, they've rolled the stone. You could see inside the sepulcher somewhat, and the people nearby, they could look, they could see the body in there. They think Jesus is going to go in and view the body, but he doesn't. Instead, he says a short prayer and calls Lazarus to come forth. Can you imagine the expectation in that moment? What was going to happen? Think with me about those people around the front of the sepulcher, and they're looking in. They can see Lazarus laying there, wrapped in his clothes, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And they're watching. And all of a sudden, Lazarus sits up. They can't believe their eyes. And then he spins around a little bit, probably slowly, and so he can put his feet on the ground. And his legs are wrapped up. He probably has to walk, kind of scoot his feet like that. Some have speculated that maybe it was a miracle that brought him out to the edge of the tomb. Maybe it was, but he probably could have walked a little bit. And he began to walk out. And when he gets out... Jesus says, loose him and let him go. It's interesting, Jesus could have moved the stone, couldn't he? Sure. He could have spoken to that stone and broke it into a million pieces. But he doesn't do what you and I can do. There's some things he wants us to do in, in service for him and in our walk with him. And so uh, he asked them to move the stone. They could do that. What they couldn't do was raise the dead. Only Jesus could do that. And then he could, have, he could have commanded those grave clothes to unwrap around him, but he wasn't there to put on a show. He was doing what only he could do. He was letting them do what they could do. And he does that with us, doesn't he? There's things you and I can do in service for our Lord and living for him. There's things we can't do. So they loose him and let him go. Let's take up the story here. Let's see. And uh, verse, where is it? Verse 44. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. I am really behind, aren't I? Um, I, I, I want to say, say this as quickly as I can. Think with me about Lazarus' side for a minute of things. He's in heaven. His body's in the tomb, but Lazarus himself, he's in heaven. <clears throat> Maybe he's already seen God the Father on his throne. And the throne at the right hand of God the Father is empty because Jesus is not in heaven right then. He's on earth. 
And there's something missing in heaven, and everybody's talking about it. And, and Lazarus now is in heaven. Maybe he's already met Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Elijah and Elisha, maybe. We don't know. And, and uh, maybe King David. Uh, and, and maybe Abraham said, said to, uh, to Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, Jesus is on earth right now. D did you ever get to see him or hear him? And Lazarus said, I heard him preach many times. He used to come to my house. We ate together and we laughed together. People were in awe. Something's missing, but Jesus is coming back to heaven soon. And then while Lazarus is talking to some of them, he says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's calling me. He's calling me back. I've got to go back. And Jesus calls him back into his body. And he consciously then realizes he's back in the tomb, wrapped in grave clothes. And he gets up and comes out. Wow. What a moment. Some people believed, and that's what we've got to end with, some, some people believe, look at verse 45, and many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Isn't that beautiful? He was seeking and saving the lost, wasn't he? All, all of that seemed like he was behind, timing wasn't right. All of that was in his divine purpose and his divine plan. You've got divine providence. You've got human, uh, human decisions. And all of it rolled together in one that Jesus was seeking and saving the lost. And many came to him that day. But not everybody. <laughs> Some scholar wrote, We rejoice over the many... But we are confused that the word wasn't all. Why didn't everybody come to him? I mean, he raised the dead. It couldn't be disputed. They saw it. Look at the next verse. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them the things which were done. And the Pharisees gathered. and They didn't deny his miracles. If we had time to read the rest of that, they didn't deny his miracles. They didn't say, wow, now he's raised somebody from the dead after four days. He must really be the Messiah. They didn't say that. They said, he does so many miracles that can't be denied. Everybody's going to end up following him, and Rome's going to come in and take away our, our comfortable jobs and positions. Let's kill him. Can you imagine the human heart? How sinful. How wicked. Let's close right there. Bow with me, please. Maybe you'd say, Preacher, I know I belong to Christ, but I want to live for Him in such a way that I'll be His close and dear friend like Lazarus was. Pray for me. That's what I want in my life. Would you slip your hand up all over the building today? Yes, God bless you all over. Me too. Maybe you'd say this, Preacher, I've never been saved. Pray for me. Anyone like that? I've never been saved. Pray for me. Anyone? Anyone? Father, thank you for our time together. Lord Jesus, remind us how much you care. Whatever touches us, touches you. You wept. You were deeply moved, stirred, 
our heart aches, our pain stirs you as well. It moves you because of your great compassion. There may be some even today going through really difficult times where they know your presence and strength and grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please. The words are on the screen. Let's sing together. And if you'd like to come for prayer, we invite you to come. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Jesus cares, doesn't he? He does. He cares. Visitors, joy to have you. Come back and be with us. Don't forget Bible studies tonight, 6 o'clock. And we're fixing to feed you right now. And uh, so, please, you, as I say every year, you've got to eat somewhere. You might as well eat here. You're not going to find any better fellowship. We're going to go in there and sit around and eat and have a good time and, and, uh, and raise money for... And nobody's going to ask you for money. I don't mean that. You'll go in, enjoy a meal. There'll be a place where you can put a donation. And it'll be that, uh, that simple. Karen and I are going to be out at the front. We're still bumping elbows. Father, thank you for our time together. Use us as we go. Bless the dinner. And I pray that you will raise those funds so that uh, a group can go to, uh, on the missions trip this summer and share your love with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God, God bless you.